This episode is brought to you by Winnie the Pooh and the 100 Acre Re-Education Camp, starring Xi Jinping, in cinemas now. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Brian Boyd. Brian is a writer and academic, and he is the world-leading expert on Vladimir Nabokov. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Nice to be there, Ben. How's lockdown in Auckland treating you? Uh, it, it's a severe lockdown, but uh, we, we like it that way because it's effective. Um, but for me, it, it makes no difference. I sit here in my study all day long anyway, so yeah. And might I say what a fine study it is. Brian is sitting in a study full of books. It looks amazing, Brian. Which, which, which I've been working, uh, a study I've been working in for 36 years. I wrote the Nabokov biography here and, uh, well, everything since. So. <laughs> you wrote your thesis in 1979 on Arda. Could you tell us how you got into Vladimir Nabokov? Well, my parents both left school at 14 uh, in the Depression, and uh, they didn't know how to satisfy my passion for reading. So uh, they ended up, after having owned a, a dairy, a little corner store. Uh, they, they bought a, a bookstore in, in Palmerston North, um, uh, which had a lending library. And uh, I would help reshell books. And I came across Lolita, which I could see, right, this was, I was 13, I think, was, was, was a dirty book and a classic. And I thought, well, this is for me. Um, so I snuck it home and, uh, and hid it under the pillow when I wasn't reading it. And uh, I'm afraid it was way over my head at, at that age. Um, but I used to help uh, sort out uh, the subscriptions of regular magazine orders and uh, and read everything as I was processing it. Um, and there was a Time magazine cover story on Nabokov uh, in May 1969 on the publication of Arda. And there was a little boxed interview there um, with the, the heading in red, I've never met a more lonely, more lucid, mad mind than mine. And uh, <laughs> that caught my attention and everything the book I've said and it blew me away. And so I went to the local public library and got out the latest in the book if I could find, which was Pale Fire. And uh, uh, just it just blew me away. I read Arda probably about 10 years ago while at mm-hmm. university. And I was Presumably so... In- not on a course. No, not on a course. No, yeah. definitely not. You yeah. couldn't do it nowadays either. Um, <laughs> but I read it and I named my first daughter Ada after Ada, the uh-huh. book. And yeah, it is something that I go back to constantly. It is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it is. Inexhaustible. After Nabokov's death, Vera approached you and asked you to catalogue his archives. Can you tell us how that came about and what that experience was like? Okay. Um, well, I wrote... Uh, the first chapter uh, was the first two chapters for my thesis and sent them off to Carl Proffer, who was a, a Slavist in the US who had founded Artist Press, which republished all Nabokov's Russian fiction in the US. And uh, he also founded and edited Russian literature tri-quarterly and he'd written a book on, on Lolita. 
uh, and uh, he liked what he read and sent it straight on to Vera Novotov and uh, told me that she had liked what she read. And well, in fact, uh, so I, yes, so when I finished the whole thesis, I sent it off to her. I was about to come back to New Zealand um, across the Pacific, but that was, it was uh, the term of my scholarship, but I had to get back there. Um, but uh, she invited me to come to Montreux in Switzerland uh, whenever. So I rerouted myself uh, across Europe and uh, spent four days grilling her, uh, even way past her usual bedtime. Um, she was 77 and very frail at that point, uh, two years after the death of her husband. And uh, I I'd spent the months between completing the thesis and uh, and having my... PhD exam, going around uh, university and public libraries in the northeast of the US, looking for Nabokov materials. Nabokov had famously said that he that he thought looking at manu literary manuscripts was like, or uh, allowing your manuscripts to be seen was like passing around samples to your sputum, and uh, and he had talked about having destroyed the manuscript of Lolita, but in fact there was there wasn't uh, a lot of manuscript material available. Uh, at that point, although he had given his manuscripts to the Library of Congress, but it was under restriction at that point. Um, but he uh, he had been involved in correspondence with people that had that had got into places like Yale and Cornell and uh, Bryn Mawr and so on. And so I was able to get quite a lot of uh, material. So I I was armed with very precise questions. I was for, for Vera. Um, I was planning on uh, doing a kind of bibliography that would include as much biography as possible uh, details about the circumstances of composition and publication and uh, uh, as a way of compensating for the dearth of fact in Andrew Field's biography and the the mess in his bibliography um, and so I was asking her all these precise questions about uh, Nabokov Nabokov's circumstances and so on. She realized that I knew far more than anybody except she did about Nabokov's life and publication history and so on. So, um, yeah, when I got back to New Zealand to where I was starting a postdoc on New Zealand literature, which I must say I'd never studied at university, um, I uh, got this invitation from her to sort out the archive. And of course, uh, I was absolutely blown away because I'd pictured myself as coming back to kind of exile here in New Zealand so far away from the materials that I've been working on and suddenly I had better access to, to those materials than anybody else in the world. So, uh, I did that for two summers 79 to 80 and 8081 uh, and, and dribs and drabs thereafter as new material trickled in um, and uh, began the biography at the end of 81. The biography in two parts, you've got the Russian years and the American years, is such a, it's a beautifully written compendium of his life. I, I've gone back to that over and over as well. It's just so, it, it really tells his story beautifully and the narrative flows really well and it really does give a lot of insight into his life. Yes, I was looking forward, I, I had uh, ideas about his, his, uh, his philosophy and the relationship between his thought and his style that uh, 
that I'd been able to express in the PhD, but I wanted a, a larger audience for it and to develop it across all his work. So it was a, a fabulous opportunity to reach out to a broad audience. I mean, I've never liked writing for a, a rebarbative academic style, um, uh, only for insiders. So, yeah. One of my favorite books on my shelf is, your, is Nabokov's Butterflies, which you put together. It is a gorgeous book. It's just such a nice book to look at. Which one is, have you got the American edition or the? I've got the American edition. Yes. Okay. Yes. That, that's a, a beautiful cover. When the, when the Penguin sent me their, their cover mock-up, I said, I, I don't like the, the color, the writing, the, uh, any, anything about it. You know? And yes, the, the Americans have done a beautiful job. In your, I guess, dealings with Vera uh, after she passed away, did you have a lot to do with uh, Dimitri? Yes, yes. Uh, Dimitri was much more accessible than, than Vera. Vera was rather deaf by the time I was uh, working with her. And I remember one time um, I was trying to say, I was trying to get her to understand the word butterflies, which you wouldn't think would be a, a difficult word to get in a Navicavian context. And I repeated it several times, and, and Dimitri was in the, the room, and he just boomed out, butterflies. Um, she was saying paradise. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Dimitri was, was very helpful, very, uh, very open, as I said, uh, didn't have his, his parents' continental reserve. Um, and I often stayed with him uh, in the apartment that he inherited from Vera. Um, where he had all the archives and the the books stored. So, yes, I, he was very very trusting. Let me riffle through every every cupboard in the place uh, in search of material that I knew should be around, but that that I couldn't find. It's funny with his material because he was obviously famous for saying that if there was material that wasn't complete, you know, by the time of his death that he wanted destroyed. What's your opinion on uh, publishing the original of Laura? Um, well, I, I've written about this when I, I had been asking to read it uh, for years, especially as I was coming up the, towards the end of Nabokov's life. And Vera did allow me to read it. Uh, I was surprised at how small the little box of index cards was. And I was, had to read it on the settee opposite her settee, and she was looking at me very beady-eyed. Uh, she, she, she had a great talent for being suspicious, um, and I uh, was not allowed to take any notes. Uh, I was allowed to read it only once. And uh, a, a little later, when Dimitri came, perhaps for Christmas or New Year or something, uh, they asked me what I thought about the publication of the book, and I said, I, I, I thought uh, Nabokov's instructions should be followed, that, that it should be destroyed. Um, I hadn't really thought about it, uh, but that, when I was put to the, the question, that was my immediate response. I've been very disappointed by its fragmentary quality and uh, by what seemed to be uh, unsavory echoes of Lolita repetitions, just one time too many. But um, when when I was able to see the edited text, when Dimitri came to the conclusion that it ought to be published, um, I was able to see that that 
especially that the kind of apparent Lolita echoes are actually subversive. They're, they're, it's not at all about uh, a, an old man after a young girl. It's about uh, a stepfather trying to express his his compassion for the young girl who's rather a, a tough little brat. Um, and so he, he was setting us up to read things the wrong way. And in, in my haste reading it the first time, I hadn't realized that. And I think others failed to read, read it that way too. Um, and there, there's a lot that, that's marvelous in it. Um, I, and I thought the way that they published it with the, the wonderful cover and book design and, and the detachable uh, index cards, if you wanted them, to show how fragmentary and incomplete it was rather than trying to prevent uh, a, a smoothed out uh, revised manuscript uh, was the right way to do it if it was to be done at all. I, so I, I came around to thinking that it did um, show some of Nabokov's best qualities in patches, even though as a whole it, it was impossible to see how he was going to fit it together. And it wasn't really sustained enough, except for the beginning and one little other patch to to really engage one emotionally. I don't think it would ever have been, even had he finished it as he, he planned, it would have been one of his uh, major works. I think Look at the Harlequins, his previous novel, was a falling off. And Transparent Things, the one before that, uh, while it contains many fine things, is is also not for a wide audience. Those last two books are kind of interesting because I feel like uh, they were written post his, his fall in the mountains up there, and they do seem to look at decline a lot more than a lot of his other works I found. They, they seem like late mannerism, you know, when, when artists get to aping their own style or getting, getting too confident with their, their, their tricks so that they don't, quite engage the same way. I mean, there's even something of that in, say, Shakespeare's late plays, but yeah. Let's move on to you as a reader. Um, was there a book that really opened the doors of literature for you? Was there a gateway book for you? Well, Pale Fire was, I think. Um, I read, it, for, for those who don't know it, it it's a, a 999-line poem by John Shade with a, an a forward, uh, a commentary, and an, a line-by-line -line commentary and an index by his neighbour, Charles Kinboat. Um, Kinboat is uh, insufferably vain, very com comically vain, egotistical, narcissistic, uh, and various other things, uh, um, paranoid megalomaniac too, but um, he gives you cross-references within the forward C, C note to line 699. And having just read the the interview in Time magazine, I felt I could really trust what Nabokov was doing and followed every cross-reference, which gets harder and harder as cross-reference uh, sends you to another cross-reference and you look, you're running out of fingers to stick in, in the book to keep your place. But at the same time, if you do follow those little trails, you understand that there are secrets in the book that you've been privy to when you're only a few pages into the forward. And that sense of, of discovery that, that makes, stays with you all the way through Pale Fire and gets richer and richer. 
was what really um, blew me away and made me uh, <laughs> Nabokov devotee for the rest of my life. I was also reading Ulysses in that same year, and uh, and that was uh, blowing me away in, in, a, in a different kind of way. How old were you then? Sixteen. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's. Uh, I think I read Palfire when I was about twenty-five, and mm-hmm. I had very much the same feelings as you did. Just that sense of being enraptured in this mystery that then yeah. in keeps on it keeps on growing and yeah. keeps on hiding itself and revealing itself yeah what are the kind of things you look for in a book if you're at a bookshop or if you're looking for something what are the kind of characteristics you look for well i want to see somebody who has a new way of saying things that's also a new way of seeing things and uh, you you can tell that pretty quickly from early on, I think. Yeah. Um, sometimes, of course, you go on reputation. So I, I picked up David Foster Wallace, for instance, and uh, tried to read Infinite Jest and really got bored with the... I, I can tell he's a very clever man, very, very clever writer, but uh, bored with these sentences that are supposed to be i I suppose a a kind of satirical sludge but um um if you you contrast that with say the opening sentences of ulysses which with which it's been compared and there's just no comparison joyce is is making discoveries with language and discoveries with ways of seeing the world that are so fresh in every sentence and uh, obviously, there aren't many writers like that, but uh, you know, you don't you don't know. Uh, there, there are so many ways of being a good writer. I suppose um, you have to be open to the surprise of something, somebody doing something quite different. Uh, so, uh, there's no there's no one thing to look for except for that gasp of surprise that that that, uh, that somebody is really putting things in a, in a way that gives you a whole new sense of a, a whole new lens on, on life um let's talk about what you're writing have you got any current projects you're working on <laughs> I, I certainly have yes i in fact i took uh, i I took retirement last year at the beginning of last year from my university because, well, I'm doing a 0.25 appointment for three years, but um, in order to to progress the six books that I'm working on. So um, the the major one of these is a biography of Karl Popper, the philosopher, which I have been working on intermittently since 1996. I think I've published uh, 16 books since then, but um, Popper was somebody who lived to be 92, was a workaholic, working through the night very often, even in his late 80s, and just the, the fire of ideas would not let him sleep. And uh, he was also an assiduous correspondent, and everybody, people from all walks of life wanted a piece of him. Um, so I think there are about 300,000 letters in his correspondence. Exactly. So uh, it's, it's been a very, very long process. And unlike Nabokov, where I think uh, I, I probably did know more about 
Nabokov than anybody alive except for Vera. Um, before I started the biography, I know that when I finish the Popper biography, there'll be a lot of people who are far more expert on Popper than me. Uh, virtually every field he touched is, is one where I'm not at home. You know, tr translations from the pre-Socratic Greeks, uh, quantum mechanics, uh, probability theory, you name it. <laughs> He was someone I think they would call a polymath today. Yeah, yeah. Even more so than Nabokov, I think. I mean, oh, they're, they're both uh, way out there. Both had amazingly retentive memories and, and were just curious about everything. Hmm. So of, of the other five, what else have you got? Um, there's a book on Shakespeare that uh, I have written one book on Shakespeare and edited another, but... Uh, and I've taught a lot of Shakespeare over the years, but this is a book that uh, whose ideas I came up with way back in, I think it was 1981, uh, and actually got down to writing after I finished the Nabokov biography. But because the what I was doing was not uh, in tune with the high theorizing that was common in literature in those days, um, it, it the my earlier forays weren't uh, accepted for publication i just parked it and I, but i want to get back to it uh, I, I have i know i have shakespearean friends who uh, think very highly of what i've done so far so i'm looking forward to getting back to that uh, after the popper um i want to do two books on lolita one an updating of the annotated lolita which came out in 1970 um edited by alfred appel whom i got to know quite well uh, a very, very funny guy, irrepressibly funny, um, but uh, rather long-winded and, and self-indulgent in his annotations, and there was just a lot that has has been discovered only since he wrote. Um, and and a book on Lolita, a, a critical book that tries to solve the mysteries that I think Nabokov is setting up there, and that nobody has been, got anywhere near solving. Um, I remember surprising a, a Japanese friend of mine, a Jap the, the leading uh, anglicist amongst uh, Japanese Nabokovians, when I told him that I didn't understand Lolita. And uh, it, it's true. I, I can tell that there are things going on there, like the things that I think I've discovered in Pale Fire and Arda, um, that I want to solve. and. Uh, so doing the annotations and the, the critical book uh, should work well together. Annotations to Ada, Ada Online that you've mentioned, uh, which I want to finish. I've been working on publishing that since 1993, uh, two installments a year or three installments now. Um, the latest installment got up to 130 pages on one chapter. So um, it, it, it's getting appalling. Uh, so it's going to be um, something like two and a half thousand pages in, in a book form um, when it's finished. Uh, I don't know if any publisher will ever want to touch something like that, but uh, it, it, it'll be there online. But I would like to see it as a book, make me tighten it up and cut out the repetitions and so on. But, so that, uh, that, that's something that I do, as, as I said, three installments a year, and another chapter, there are what, uh, uh, 20, 23 chapters, so another seven years at this rate. Um, if I can maintain that, that rhythm while I'm doing these other projects. And also um, 
another project that I really want to get back to is uh, a follow-up to On the Origin of Stories, my book on uh, literature and evolution, why uh, asking and trying to answer the, the question of why we're a storytelling species. And in that book, I had two main examples, one from the kind of uh, phylogenetic origin of storytelling, so as, as close as we could get and, and have a, a bona fide masterpiece, and that was uh, Homer's Odyssey, and something uh, nearly ontogenetic origins of story, a child, a very early child story, so I, I chose Dr. Seuss's Horton, Here's Horton. a Who. Yeah. Um, and for the, the follow-up volume, I would like to look at some major stories, um, Shakespeare's Hamlet and Twelfth Night, a, a tragedy and a comedy. I was also going to do the, um, the sonnets, uh, but that spun off into a separate volume uh, while lyrics last. Um, so I, I hope these these planned chapters on on other books don't also expand into full books. So uh, Hamlet and Twelfth Night, Pride and Prejudice, um, possibly um, Anna Karenina, uh, Ulysses, and Art Spiegelman's Mouse. With mm. Art Spiegelman's Mouse, that seems like a slight departure, I suppose, from those other works. Um, well, it, it was something he was always building towards. I mean, I, um, his, his works since then, I think he, he hasn't found the, the story or the situation to engage him sufficiently. Although I, I don't know if you know his, uh, portraits of the artist as young, um, which is wonderfully revealing and, and Funny, like all his work, even Mouse. Um, no, I, th I think he, he. Mouse is, of course, less radically experimental than most of his other work, if that's what you were meaning. Um, but the the subject of the Holocaust, uh, his his Jewish heritage, uh, and his own troubled relationship with his father, especially, uh, those kinds of things permeate all his work. I think. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Brian Boyd. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Brian Boyd. Shall we move on to what you're currently reading and the books you're looking forward to reading? Okay. Um, I, re I remember interviewing Ernst Gombrich, who was uh, the art historian, who was uh, Popper's best friend. And he said, I'm, I'm too busy writing to read much. And, and you know, that, that's part of my problem, that I, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk all day going through Popper's enormous archive or his, the body of his published work and... Uh, and and still unpublished work too. Uh, he always uh, wrote faster than he could publish. Um, so you know, I don't have as much time to read as I would like to 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 read outside work things. Um, but uh, so what I'm currently reading 
Okay. Uh, I can tell you. I can tell you what I've recently read, and and I don't know if you've heard of Vanessa Spingora's book Consent. No. She's the head of uh, what is it? Juillard, uh, I think the French publisher, um, was in an extraordinary relationship with a um, a much acclaimed French writer who a serial pedophile who fastened on her when she was 14 and uh, she wrote uh, just two, two, two years ago, I think it was, that this book consent about their relationship. He actually um, described their relationship in his diaries and published the diaries. And the, di and the, you know, the, the fact of this relationship with an underage girl was known and not disapproved of in the French academic intellectual circles just extraordinary uh, since the publication of her work uh, the tide has turned and and he has been prosecuted for the relationship and uh, kind of like a, a a real world humbert humbert somebody who's a who is very much a writer and extols the the special magic of his relationship with these girls um, and he is uh, unrepentant about it i think so, thinks it was all uh, true love and so on. So uh, I was going to, I was appearing on um, Russian, a Russian Zoom conference uh, organized by the Nabokov Museum in St. Petersburg uh, on Lolita in, in the present. And so I, I read that as background. So this is <laughs> so much of my reading, even something that, that's uh, not quite related to Popper will we'll tend to have a work connection. I also read uh, Kate Elizabeth Russell's uh, My Dark Vanessa, which is about her being um, the target of her English teacher's attentions at high school, where she, she maintained for a while that it was, uh, it was entirely fiction, but it turns out that it, that it wasn't. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting novel, and My Dark Vanessa, of course, is a phrase that's lifted from um, Pale Fire, and uh, Lolita comes up a lot in... Um, in the novel, um, it's interesting. Vanessa Springer is also very conscious of Lolita, and, and both of them have very sophisticated attitudes towards the book. Realize that it's uh, you know, the, the vast difference between Nabokov and Humbert Humbert, and Nabokov's insight into uh, those pedophiles who manage to convince themselves that they're really romantically connected to their their victims. Um, I, I read a lot of nonfiction these days um, when I when I do get get the time to read, uh, and I suppose one of the the books that's appealed to me most in the last little while is Rutger Bregman's Humankind. I don't know if you know that. Uh, it, it's a book about um, well, really the the kindness in human beings and refuting a lot of the stories that were popular, uh, a, a lot of the stories and, and apparent evidence that were popular in the wake perhaps of the Second World War, the, this idea of man's inhumanity to man. Um, so he, he takes Lord of the Flies and contrasts with a, a real Lord of the Flies, a real life Lord of the Flies case in, was it Samoa or Tonga, where a, a, a bunch of boys got uh, went joyriding in a boat and, and, and uh, 
drifted off to a, an uninhabited island where they lasted about 15 minutes, months and uh, and rather than deteriorating, they set up a, a set of rules that allowed them to abide with one another very, very cooperatively. And uh, things like the, the Stanley Milgram prison experiment uh, and the uh, the Zomba, is it Zombardo, the, uh, another famous uh, experiment that, that are supposed to show the worst sides of, of humanity were actually quite rigged and, and the participants in it uh, were manipulated in, into didn't respond as the summaries of the experiments claimed they did in in all these cases where where there's much more kindness um, in humanity than perhaps uh, some intellectuals had come to think and uh, i I like very much the work of uh, David Sloan Wilson who's an evolutionary psychologist or evolutionary biologist but he works a lot on human cooperation and he's just done an interesting written an interesting novel called atlas hugged uh, as a, a kind of riposte to ayn rand's atlas shrugged which is all about ruthless individualism as as the goal and uh, it's it's a kind of uh, semi-utopian i suppose but it's set in modern day america atlas hugged and uh, i think it works very well as a as a novel um a, again uh, using using the theory of evolution um, to explain why we're such a cooperative species and why it's made such a difference to us. The, the, the reading I'm actually doing at the, the moment is um, uh, Jonathan Rauch's, um, what's it, the, the Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, which is um, about, the, about the special conditions that are required for for truth to to triumph um, in terms of the rules of science, the rules of of journalism, um, the rules of academic inquiry, and the way these have been violated recently in the post-truth era and the Trump era, and uh, uh, perhaps especially amongst Republicans in the US. Um, and yes, so that, that's something I'm enjoying very much. He's got a lot that's fresh to say there. He's, he's influenced by Popper, so that, uh, it's not how I got onto it in this case. But uh, what, I, what I'm looking forward to reading in terms of fiction next is, is Orhan Pamuk's next novel. Orhan Pamuk is, is my uh, favorite uh, literary writer working at present and I, I, I am in touch with him. Um, we've met a few times. Um, he, I know he's working on a book that's, that started before COVID, but that is about uh, a plague, a, a real plague in Turkey at the end of the 19th century, I think it is. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. His, his novels really do transport me. I've, I've taught, um, his the museum of innocence and uh, alongside the, the wonderful film that was documentary documentary whatever you want to call it that was made uh, alongside it uh, and i was in fact i wanted to we were booked to go to uh, istanbul 
and to I wanted to see the uh, the actual Museum of Innocence that is in a way a part of the the novel and uh, and also a separate project. Um, but uh, COVID got in the way. Got in the way of a lot of projects happening <laughs> for people at the moment. Yes. Are there any other current authors that really excite you? And <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, well, I mean, I I said I, I read a lot of. Uh, non-fiction these days and Franz de Waal is is one whom I've enjoyed for a long time and I'm actually yes in the, in the middle of, of reading his uh, Mama's Last Hug which is about the, the connection between animal emotions and human emotions and um, in fact I, I used the clip of Mama's Last Hug the, the, the title piece of the, the story um, in, in teaching the last time I taught uh, a wonderful if you haven't seen it, uh, look it up on YouTube. It's very moving uh, about about this ape who who, who uh, a primatologist has known for for about forty years, but ha- hadn't seen for about twenty years, and she's she's on the verge of death and, and looking so depressed that he goes into her cage, which you wouldn't do with a, a healthy chimp because you'd be at, at risk. And uh, and she suddenly recognises him, and, and she, the jubilation in her face just just extraordinary. Um, yeah, very very moving. I I'm looking forward to reading John McWhorter's Woke Racism, um, which is coming out in October. I I read a lot of things about evolution and uh, evolutionary psychology, the evolution of cooperation, um, that sort of thing. But in, in terms of Fiction writers, I don't know. I mean, I, I do read, for instance, um, for instance, Margaret Atwood. Um, she's a, a writer full of ideas, and uh, not quite at the the literary level that I would like. Um, I am so busy reading and, and writing that I don't get to even to keep my antenna tuned to. What might be worth reading there, and and often when I do pick something up that's been strongly recommended, uh, I it doesn't grip me enough to compete with my nonfiction reading or um, or with my uh, or or to cope with the fact that I have so little time for discretionary reading. We'll take a quick break here and come back with Brian's top ten. Do you spend too much time on social media when you could be spending time with your family or writing that novel? Here at GetCancelled.com, we can help. We can personalise a media strategy guaranteed to get you cancelled. Use the promo code for your first month free. GetCancelled.com We're back with Brian Boyd. Brian, are you ready to do your top ten? Sure. Yeah. You, you you did tell me that you were going to ask me about top ten books, yeah. and I find it hard to um, not to think about authors mm. rather than books because if I was to just go in terms of books, I might put Pale Fire, Ada, um, Lolita, and Speak Memory amongst the top ten, which I think would be crowding out <laughs> too much else. So um, Pale Fire would certainly be still would be my all-time favourite novel, favourite book of any kind, I think. Um, 
but those those other Nabokov novels would, would come very close behind. And we've we've talked about Pale Fire and its qualities. Um, I probably don't need to to mention to to go into details about the others. Um, Ulysses would be uh, another one. In this case, it would not be a, a case of the whole author because I think uh, well the Dubliner stories have wonderful qualities and a portrait of the artist in a young man has excellent bits and Finnegan's Wake uh, is is a nightmare. So U Ulysses stands out for me by its uh, its ability to capture the, the texture of ordinary life and make it look absolutely a, a treasure, uh, inexhaustibly full of, of riches everywhere. And he's got the the same riches in in language and in uh, narrative strategies and, and so on. It's um, yeah, and but but it's especially the character of Bloom. I think uh, is just the the most engaging in all of literature. Again, if if we go further down my list it, i could name particular plays of shakespeare but really you know it's the whole whole canon and and it's a bit hard to compare say hamlet against a single novel shakespeare would would definitely be up there and, and it, i have i don't know about 15 favorite shakespeare plays so <laughs> um, um i have written at length on the odyssey and uh that is just extraordinary to me that there could be a story of such structural complexity, um, such, such richness of, of character, um, such perfection of design written or, or composed before writing even uh, 2,800 years ago. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that there could have been two such extraordinary geniuses that a separate Homer wrote the Iliad as, as classical scholars tend to think, uh, although it's, it's not decided. Uh, the Iliad is clearly much earlier in some ways, um, but it could be 30 or 40 years earlier, um, much less sophisticated structurally but on the other hand grander in its conception so um it would be hard to to say which of those two i would want to rate highest i think i do enjoy the odyssey more but the iliad um you you, you reach such levels of exaltation so quickly in that book um, it's it's an experience like no other, and, and and the things he says about war are just so. Even though it revels, it it uh, it confronts you with details of the gruesomeness of war all the time. It it's um, it's such a challenge to to anyone who who wants to think about war as a as a form of glory. Uh, it's in terms of its morality it, it's perhaps almost more sophisticated than the odyssey uh with, with its strong revenge ethic at the end um I, another book that uh would get into my top 10 is well a my Antonia. i don't know if you know that well but um it 
it just transports me uh, into this uh, prairie um, pioneer world in the Americas. Um, I just find the the characters, the the landscape, the the relationship between humans and their physical setting so engaging all the way the the intense effect of the seasons um it it's a novel that where every sentence seems to to sing and i i like uh, other uh, willa cather novels but that seems to be to me it certainly speaks to me much more than any others um i would certainly have jane austen there um and it would probably be Pride and Prejudice. Uh, that, that's the one I would like to write about in my follow-up to On the Origin of Stories, which, which is, clear, I, I think, uh, undoubtedly the most perfect of her books, although Emma is, is very fine too. Um, she, she, again, has a completely different way of seeing the world from anybody else. Uh, she barely describes colours, uh, so totally antithetical to Nabokov, who, who's got these elaborate color compounds, like like almost like you know a a, a painter's uh, a, a paint uh, sample chart with all these subtle gradations of color. She's just not interested in the physical world it, to a, a great extent, uh, but but so interested in the intellectual and, and moral worlds, and and she focuses on that with such intensity that it's it's really. Uh, it's like uh, unlike anything else in literature, and uh, I I just admire that uh, that rigor as as well as the wryness of it all. Anna Karenina would be another. Uh, in in this case, I, mean, I, I like uh, most things that Tolstoy writes, but uh, Anna Karenina stands head and shoulders above the rest to me. Maybe Haji Murat uh, is is another uh, that that almost. Uh, uh, Certainly, in terms of the sensory qualities, it's it's up there with Anna Karenina. But uh, Tolstoy ha has a capacity for placing you within a scene as if it's happening around you that I think no other writer ever has. Nabokov has has capacity to do that uh, at the same time as he's trying to get you to think beyond the scene. But Tolstoy keeps you within the scene in, in this uncannily close way. Um, and that is, uh, I, I don't think he does it nearly so successfully in War and Peace, for instance. Although the, his autobiographical trilogy, uh, Childhood, Boyhood and Youth, has lots of magical moments in it too. Another perhaps surprising choice that I'll make would be the posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas by Machado de Assis. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but uh, Macharu is um, was a Brazilian writer of the 19th century whose, uh, well, the posthumous memoirs seems to, seems more like a cross between um, Stern's Tristram Shandy and, and Samuel Beckett than anything else you, you, you will have ever encountered in the 19th century. It's incredibly funny, incredibly dark. Uh, the, the central character has died um, before he begins writing, um, and it, it's 
it's a kind of philosophical novel, but it's also uh, a, a kind of uh, education sentimental, uh, like like Flaubert's. Uh, so um, the central character is rather naive when it comes to uh, his love relationships. Uh, always in love with a with a prostitute, uh, a very hard bitten prostitute uh, early on, and, and so on. Um, it, it's uh, it's just a wonderful read, and unfortunately, as uh, a major Portuguese writer said, uh, Portuguese as a language is, is the cemetery of literature. It, it's very hard to, to get readers outside uh, Brazil or, or Portugal if you're a Portuguese writer. But those who, who know um, Machado de Assis, uh, other than Portuguese speakers, uh, like uh, uh, Harold Bloom, Woody Allen, Susan Sontag, they're absolute fans, and I think there's, there's a good reason for that. Um, unfortunately, I don't think any of the translations uh, are quite good enough. Maybe maybe the most recent uh, translation of Posthumous Memoirs, which I've dipped into and, and does look much better than the others, um, is, uh, is adequate to the task. And uh, I, I would put Mouse, I'm, I'm not quite sure where we are, where we are in terms of numbers, but uh, um, Mouse is, uh, to me, far and away the greatest achievement of, of anything in anything in comics, um, and it's just uh, compellingly original, beautifully structured, uh, a, a wonderful way of coping with the horrors of the Holocaust, and yet personalising them, uh, both distancing them uh, through the the uh, graphic device of having the Jews represented as mice and the Germans as cats and other species in, in other uh, ethnicities in, in different as different species. Um, it, it's, a, it's a way of distancing and and also of subverting the central metaphor of racism that uh, Hitler's claim that the Jews are are another species um, and and deserve to be exterminated. So. Um, it's amazingly clever, uh, amazingly crafted. It, it every every frame is so carefully structured. Every page is so carefully structured. Every chapter, it's he he Spiegelman just knows how to pack things in uh, in a way that, in this case, m made them very accessible immediately, so that you might not notice the the intensity of the artistry, um, but that. Uh, rep repays endless uh, attention and revisiting to see exactly how he's been able to make it so accessible immediately and yet so inexhaustible artistically. Um, and I suppose if we're going back to, uh, I, I like a lot of what Spiegelman has done elsewhere, but it doesn't seem to have the, the scale or, or, uh, or, or the combination of of accessibility and artistic subterfuge, if you like, or a, a craftsmanship that he has in Mouse. Another author I would have to put on, I think, would be Dickens, but I don't know. I, I would find it hard. Uh, it's it's whatever Dickens I'm reading at the moment uh, would, would be the one I'd want to put in a top 10 list. But things like uh, Our Mutual Friend, Bleak House, uh, Great Expectations, uh, David Copperfield, uh, 
he, he has such a, a, a fertility of imagination and uh, a vibrancy of, of language. I, I think those, those would be my, my top picks. Yeah. I can't wait to read your Popper biography. I think that'll be amazing. It's it's going to be such a structural challenge compared with the the book of um, he was interested in so many different things at once you know uh, five or six different research lines of inquiry so how do I how do I do justice to that and and also he had a much more complicated personality than I think Nabokov had Nabokov manages to create these amazingly complicated uh, inventions but he was actually a very um, very self contained. Uh, very controlled person in himself, uh, whereas Popper was um, both uh, a, an intense rationalist and somebody who was given to irrational bursts of anger <laughs> that, that terrified people. Um, uh, he, he was much more psych psychologically troubled and uh, and a really divided opinion enormously, so that some people found him just just uh, endearing and others people thought he was a monster so um, creating a sense of his variety as a person and the variety of his um, pursuits and given the fact that he was a workaholic all his life so his life wasn't necessarily so externally dramatic but uh, there were major uh, intellectual falling falls out with his some of his disciples if you want to call them that um, there are there will be, there will be plenty of drama but it's not uh, it's a it's a drama that's um more in the head than than out there in the 3d world well brian it's been a pleasure thanks so much for coming on beyond the zero it's been a pleasure ben Thanks once again to Brian Boyd. You can check out all the details in our show notes. You can find us on Twitter at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.